0: There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have a relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. A successful business has many components at a practical level, employee competence, good management, strategic leadership, and ultimately a product that the market needs or wants. All are key elements. Increasingly, organizations have focused on employee wellness, understanding that a healthy workforce is a fundamental requirement. Whilst physical health has been an obvious priority, the importance of mental health is now more clearly understood to impact significantly on employee performance and the health of any business. Whilst absenteeism is a concern, what about presenteeism, burnout? All are potential consequences of mental health-related difficulties. It seems that corporate mental health represents an area of the business environment that can no longer simply be understood as an abstract concept, but is indeed a dynamic phenomenon that cannot be ignored. On today's episode, entitled Mental Health in the Workplace, I'd like to welcome professors Renata Skuman and Karen Milner now Renata is a psychiatrist she's uh, been on this podcast a few times before she works in private practice in Belleville. she is an associate professor in leadership at the University of Stellenbosch Business School she's also the convener of the South African Society of Psychiatrists special interest group for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder ADHD She's co-founder of the Goldilocks and the Bear ADHD Project, which contributes to the Goldilocks and the Bear Foundation, which is the first to offer non-profit ADHD screening and early intervention in underserved communities at schools. Karen is an associate professor of psychology in the School of Human and Community Development at the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg, South Africa. She is registered as an industrial organizational psychologist and I'm never quite sure which is the one we're using now, industrial or organizational, but she'll clarify. Either way, registered with the Health Professions Council of South Africa. Her teaching and research interests are in the field of employee well-being and mental health at work. Karen has published extensively in the field of health and well-being, including mental health. Uh, and that is in terms of what goes on in the workplace. And her publications have been both local and international. And she's also the co-author, together with Judith Anser, of a book entitled Beyond Tea and Tissues, Protecting and Promoting Mental Health at Work. That's published by KR Books. And if you go to kr.co.za, you will find the book available there. So, Renata and Karen, thanks for taking the time to join us for this episode of Beyond Madness. So I want to start with this term that I mentioned, corporate mental health. And I'm going to put Renata in the spotlight because of her involvement with uh, the University of Stellenbosch's initiative to promote corporate mental health through seminars and roadshows. And Renata, I could ask you about the roadshows, and I think I could spend a podcast just talking about those roadshows in terms of why and what motivated University of Stellenbosch Business School, what's the impact, what the feedback has been, and when is the next one. But if we have time, we'll get to that. So let's just focus on corporate mental health. So what is your definition? What is your understanding? How do you explain it to people when you talk about corporate mental health?
1: So corporate mental health is about mental health in the workplace. I suppose it just sounds a bit more corporate, giving you the proper title. But the real aim of it is bringing the conversation into the boardroom and into the corridors and not only in a locked door or a closed door, um, as Karen mentioned with the title of a book, that it's something that HR is doing. That was what was previously seen. And we now know that corporate health is the wealth of the organization. It infuses the culture, it infuses the operations, it infuses the bottom line. And if we do not have these conversations and address also the stigma surrounding mental health, especially also in the workplace, that is where we can have significant fallout then. And dire consequences.
0: Well, I think that the understanding that it's about mental health in the workplace is, is a much more uh, practical way in a sense. Because you know, when I think of the word corporate, I'm thinking business, I'm thinking private sector. But the truth of the matter is state institutions surely also have issues that need to be addressed and should probably fall within that umbrella of mental health in the workplace. And to, to some extent, does corporate mental health not necessarily put them outside of that loop when in fact – they should be very much in the loop?
1: I think we can talk about terminology here, but the initial use of the term corporate was to bring it to the attention of the business sector, whether right. it's private sector or public sector, but to take it out of the domain of merely the responsibility of healthcare professionals and HR and to really make it a business imperative.
0: Right. So I think that's, that's, that's obviously a, a starting point. But I suppose from coming from the state sector myself for many decades – and when I think about employee wellness and I think about the kinds of things that uh, employees experience in the in the state sector, I think that uh, I would, you know, just look at mental health in the workplace as as something that's really important. But obviously one, one has a, a starting point potentially looking at business uh, sector, but I think that the state sector is a huge sector. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's one of the engines besides the private sector that really drives the country forward. And I think that, you know, for me, as I said, coming from the state sector, it's 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 got a special place in my heart in terms of how things should be better within that sector. So, I mean, are there are there specific ways of thinking about corporate mental health from a theoretical perspective? Um, I know that uh, the issue of how you know you relate to yourself, how you relate to others around you, how you relate to where you are, what your purpose is, what your future holds. I mean, do these kind of considerations come into this? term, corporate mental health?
1: Yeah, there's not one theoretical model, but I think if you look at leadership models that we use also at the Stellenbosch Business School in the leadership program, it's about me, we, and the world. So it's to self-regulate yourself and to look after your own health, and that would link with what we will discuss most likely later, a little bit about primary prevention, where there's also an onus on the employee, not only on the employer. And then the we is the team, the team dynamics, which would be more in the field of organizational and industrial psychology again. But also what is in there is that we often see the fallout in mental health care circles in terms of corporate bullying or bullying at the workplace and also dysfunctional cultures. But also that plays a role there is, for example, work schedules. For example, would be a lack of boundaries in when and how we communicate with people and the it was maybe drive to the fore with the COVID pandemic where we ended up working virtually and hybrid models, but you work extended hours. Um, And then the third thing that we also see there is where people, um, when we talk about the world, is where the organization realized but. I have a responsibility to keep my employees well because there is a financial spin off right. and if we look at some of the stats now now, it even have a societal spin off yes. if we do not look after AI employers uh, employees because it also affects their families. Now we know that on a me level it is about prevention, but what is also very important that we know the significant number of people that walk around with undiagnosed mental health issues. And it might be a many reasons for that. It might be a lack of um, awareness, a lack of access to resources, but also the stigma which contributes to people not seeking assistance.
0: So, Karen, the title of your book, and I didn't ask because I haven't had an opportunity, but I'm going to ask you now, when was it published? The book was published last year. Okay, so it's uh, cutting edge. Yeah. It's right. So. It's yeah. very current. So, I mean, the, the part of the title of the work, I mean, that you've published the, the book is mental health at work, and I think that's what we're talking about. So, your comments on 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 what Renata's saying—anything that you want to specifically add at this point?
2: So, I mean, I think what you, I think she's covered the area, of, you know, really effectively. I think just to mention the the title of the book um, and where the book came from might be useful. Yes. Yeah, what, you know, where the idea came from. This no. book's been, it's, it's been kind of sitting for a long time um, while, I d- you know, debating whether or not and what I, what I must do with it. But it comes from an incident that happened many years ago um, when I was in a, an organization and I bumped into an old student of mine who was in HR and she was very, very distressed. Um, and I asked her why she was so upset and she had just had a meeting with an employee who was really deeply depressed um, and she turned and who had been crying in her office. And she turned around to me and she said, Karen, all I had to offer her was tissues and tea. And that phrase stayed in my mind, and I realized that most organizations, public sector, private sector, corporate, however you want to define them, um, there, there simply isn't a capacity and there isn't an, a, an understanding of mental health in the workplace. And that organizations should be able to offer their employees in distress more than tissues and tea. And so this book is really about employ, about empowering employees themselves but also empowering everyone in the workplace, uh, to be yes. able to manage and deal with mental
0: health issues. Okay. So that's very important. And obviously it's, it's, it's a partnership between the employer and the employee, because at the end of the day, everybody gets something out of it. And so I think that that is very important. This, this idea of, 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 of partnership and, and working together. But obviously the importance is linked to I think what I have seen written about as stress-related conditions, and I think Renata, you've you've mentioned in in some of the pieces that you've written, which were reports on, on on the roadshow, looking at the costs of 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 stress-related conditions, and I mean, coming up with a figure that I saw of two point two percent of GDP. I mean, that's a significant figure. I mean, do you want to comment on that? And, and, and just kind of put that in, 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 in perspective in terms of just how much of a cost that really is, because we're just talking about a purely financial cost now, but that is speaking to the extent of dysfunction.
1: Yes, thank you, Christopher. So there's a couple of studies. The one is a 2005 study. And then a 2012 study, which then estimated this as 2.2% of the GDP, the impact of mental health disorders in South Africa. However, there's a more recent study that was published in 2016 by the London School of Economical and Political Sciences that compared South Africa to a number of other countries. And what was interesting, this study did not only look at absenteeism, because we often measure mental health in terms of are you absent or at work, but, but they looked specifically at presenteeism, so being present at work but being unwell. And the impact of that is tremendous. We know that South Africa is the country with the highest rate of presenteeism in percentage, according to the study, and they calculated the cost of that as more than the tourism industry and also more than all the, the value of all the total social grants combined in South Africa. Sure. Now, that is only looking at people that's employed. Now, can you imagine how dire it is if that is the effect of employed people? What a big impact it has on the economy. And that, it's almost like an argument to be made, like we worry about job creation in the country, but we don't even keep our people well at work. If we would keep them well at work, we would have so much more money to create jobs and to create opportunities. The very interesting thing also about the study in terms of presenteeism is that presenteeism tends to have a bimodal distribution. So it's either the people in the lower employment that that's affected, the day wages, the contract workers, where if I'm not at work today, there's no food on the table tonight, which means people stay at work. But the danger is there is it's often people that work with machinery or dangerous equipment. So so the impact that that can have, again, in terms of serious injuries and life loss. The second part of the bimodal distribution is, again, on executive level. Either people that self-employed have their own businesses or people that's employed on executive level in organizations, where they are the decision makers and they often feel, I cannot take time off because I need to be strong. I can't seem to be vulnerable. I will just work harder and we will get through this but other people see the changes in behavior and emotional health, etc. And also, if you are mentally unwell, you cannot take clear, rational, cognitive decisions, which then, again, can potentially have huge negative impacts on the whole strategy and the the way in which the organization is managed.
0: I mean, for me, this is uh, how I'm thinking about it, is that everybody in the middle is like the, the meat in the sandwich. Because essentially you've got your execs who are struggling, you've got your lower level who's struggling, and who's really then carrying the burden, which eventually comes down to your middle management and your regular employees, and to what extent does it then insidiously go through the entire system? So how does presenteeism kind of corrupt the entire system, although it's got this bimodal distribution, at some point it's going to filter up and filter down?
1: It does, and then it's the middle middle level of employees which most likely have sick leave. They have the income no that they do have to pay whether they take the leave or not. They are then booked off for extended periods for diagnoses such as. Burnout. And right. we know that burnout is not a medical disorder. It's not a diagnosis. You cannot book someone off for a month with burnout. Yes. If that is the case, you need to make sure that this person gets to a mental health care practitioner where a proper diagnosis can be made and a proper treatment plan instituted. But just admitting someone was three weeks in a clinic or booking them off for three months to rest, that is negligence because someone do not get a proper assessment and diagnosis and proper treatment.
0: So you see, I think this whole issue of burnout, we've we've actually dedicated a podcast episode to to that because it is a really a a significant problem. And I mean, people speaking more and more and more about burnout. I'm not sure exactly what is happening in relation to burnout. Karen, your thoughts on burnout?
2: So I agree with Renata completely. I think what's really critical when it comes to burnout, and this is particularly from an organizational psychology point of view, is that aside from um, whether you do a diagnostic, whether you actually diagnose a burnout or not, there's something quite invidious, I think, about um, somebody who's experiencing burnout. They're booked off for a week or two weeks or potentially even more. And then they're taken back into the situation mm. that has caused the burnout in the first place. Right. So yes. all you're really doing is, is and, and I, I think that respite, I do believe that respite and rest can, uh, so I, I don't want to be extreme on this, yes. rest and yes. respite certainly can help to address certain elements of burnout. But I think that when you simply take people out of the workplace in a a very, uh, in in a way that doesn't address what's causing the burnout in the first place, and you take them out and you book them off for a short while, and then you put them straight back into that situation, the chances are very likely that you're not actually going to address the burnout. And that very often what's happened is that the burden that, that was falling on that person now falls on the other people in the organization. And, and uh, it's is exacerbated rather than resolved.
0: And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because not only does the burden fall on them, but I can assure you it causes resentment as well. And it actually right. kind of poisons the interpersonal dynamic between employees, which further exacerbates the situation. But essentially, as you were talking, Karen, I was thinking we're shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Because at the end of the day, we're just moving things around, and so there's a bit of respite. But we're not necessarily getting down to the essence of what is going on. So there's not a proper, let me call it deep dive into, well, why is this person burnt out? What does it mean? What are the systemic issues, aside from any personal issues that might be contributing? What are the systemic issues? And I think that for me, that is the real issue. And I can tell you from my own experience, I do do medical legal work on occasion. And one of, the, one of the sad things I find is that many of the folk who present to me have actually been in situations that they would describe themselves as toxic, where nobody has really listened to them, nobody's really heard what is going on. There's been a lot of interpersonal issues, there's been all kinds of distress, and eventually what happens is they get a diagnosis. And now there's a mental illness, and now eventually they land up seeing a psychiatrist. And when you track it all back... There wasn't necessarily a mental illness to start with, but in fact, because of interpersonal issues and because of the kind of things we're talking about where the system has sort of just moved the person along, the problem never got dealt with, and then it lands up with a psychiatrist. And I have really had significant concerns about HR practices because I'm kind of wondering to myself, it's called human resources, but to what extent are the human resources actually being managed as humans as opposed to pieces of paper where hr has become an administrative function as opposed to a human function i don't know what your thoughts are renata and then karen
1: i had a very interesting experience today um just talking about hr i got an email from hr um, with a flag to say um I can't remember the terminology exactly, but abnormal utilization of sick leave. And I immediately thought I'm in trouble because I'm a part-time employee at the business school. And then HR actually flagged that I haven't utilized enough annual leave for the past six months, the past 12 months, according to what I'm entitled to. And the question was then directed to my line manager about what are you going to do about it? which I thought, wow, this is such a new approach from HR because people often see it as punitive, and even my initial reaction. And I think that is what I'm grateful for, for corporate mental health initiatives. Over the past couple of years, let's call it mental health in the workplace, whatever we call it, the conversation came to the fore. And with COVID, I think it was almost like a tipping point because suddenly everyone has joined the conversation. We realise... We have to address work-life balance. We realize there has to be a move into flexibility. There has to be a move from bumps in seed as an indicator of um, productivity to output. <clears throat> we also, what I believe, see these two new trends that we have quite quitting in a four-day week, which I do believe is maybe a reaction to not paying attention to how mental health should be addressed initially in terms of healthy boundaries, healthy habits, etc.,
0: karen
2: thanks so i've got some sympathy with poor old hr people i, I really do <laughs> no no I listen think that,
0: we're not knocking hr it's just I know, an observation no, I
2: hear you. <laughs> but I, I think that people do knock hr quite a lot and i think that a lot of the burden sits on hr mm. they have to both be the gatekeepers of performance um so there's a role there whether it be allow as, as as renata said whether you get an email criticizing you for not taking your leave or you get an email querying your leave so on the one hand they they, they function as the, the gatekeepers of performance and the gatekeepers of a whole lot of functions that often do impact on um, employee well-being and on mental health. On the other hand they're also the people that you are that are the first line that people are expected to go to when they're struggling at work. So they've got these very conflicting roles at some level and they're often are not really the people who are empowered or have the power to make fundamental changes to the workplace. Good HR, and I have come across them, and when they are good and they advocate on behalf of their employees, they are outstanding. Right. Where and when they see the role as advocating on behalf of their employees, they can make, and this is where I really would like to empower them, yes. they, for yes. their own jobs and for other people's jobs, they can make an immense difference. But for the most part, they are seen as simply the, the in-betweeners, between employees and managers having these strange gatekeeping roles um, and not really empowered themselves to make
0: You see, I think, I mean, just, just going back a couple of decades, I think HR was always kind of seen as the soft underbelly of a business. It wasn't really taken that seriously. And I think what one is seeing is that there's been a real shift in terms of how important proper human resource management, so managing your resources that are humans, has become. And I think this is what this whole conversation is about. But I wanted to pick up on something that has just happened to Renata in terms of why aren't you taking sufficient leave. And I do think that's very important because at the end of the day, leave is there not to be accumulated. Leave is there to be taken. And there's a reason why you have leave. And to what extent an employee does not take leave could impact on how they function ultimately. So I think that in this instance, it's interesting that they use the the word inappropriate use of leave. So was it inappropriate use of leave or misuse of leave or non-use of leave? I can't remember exactly what it was. But the fact of the matter is they were flagging the fact that you haven't taken your allocated number of days when you should have what is going on. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think that's a very good thing because there's, you know, certainly in the state sector, they brought in a policy where you would lose your leave. If you didn't, so you, because people were accumulating unbelievable numbers of days, and one had to question to what extent they were actually able to accumulate so many days and never have leave. But certainly it became policy that I think within six months or within the year, you could only accumulate for the next six months and then you would lose it. So the idea was to get people to take leave. And I think that's very important because I've, I've, I've understood that that is actually part of the intervention in terms of employee wellness, in terms of employee mental health and the health of a business is to get people to take leave. Renata?
1: Historically, it's also interesting there's a unique, well, it's not unique to South Africa. We have uh, countries abroad that also have their long holidays and their short holidays. But specifically in South Africa, we saw... The December holiday, it's a month of holiday for everyone. Yes. The builders stop working, yes. the schools break, the universities break, everything comes to a halt. So often that was the four weeks leave for people. And there was various factors. It might have been commuting, working far away from your family, for example, or whatever the case might be. But research have shown that that is not a good practice. What they've shown, the research, is to, to prevent burnout and complications, or to keep your workforce engaged, everyone should take two weeks leave every six months or one week leave every three months. So so that is way more effective in managing your energy levels and the health of your employees during the year, yet we still have this December holiday scene. But it might, as I said, there's many factors that play a role. What I've seen in working in this mental health at work space is often the people that's most um, receptive, as you say, Karen, is HR. They love and they believe this. So we always preach to the converted, which make it very difficult. So if I host workshops or I do corporate interventions, I always want to speak to leadership. And then to the other employees, the reason for the employees always believe, oh, yeah, what we do is wonderful. And HR is converted already. But in the end, it's the leaders and specifically the FD that take the decision whether they invest in a corporate health program or corporate mental health um, initiative.
0: So the and- FD is the financial director. Yeah, these the person the, that I have to sign the, up. So right. even your
1: the leader, the, the boss might approve of the whole concept. And then the you need to convince the guy that's holding the wallet. This is a good idea. And there's actually some good studies. Now, from the older studies show that your return on investment is 1.5. So for every one rand I invest in a mental health program at work, my return will be 1.5 because there's less absenteeism, less presenteeism, less turnover of staff, etc. The newest studies that also looked at quality of performance and quality of life estimate the return on investments between 4.3 and 7.2, even 8. Hmm. Now, that is massive. I mean, that is a better investment that we can do in any, any financial investment at this stage. So, so the, the, there's even a financial argument for so, investing in this. So,
0: it should be a very easy sell. I mean, if we're just looking in terms of rands and cents and and, and the return on investment, I mean, that's an excellent return on investment. So why is there a problem then in terms of selling the concept and and, and getting organizations, be they private or be they state sector, to really look at how they manage employee leave in a way that is actually conducive to better health and actually everybody wins. So Renata, you brought it up, but I'll – I'll flip it to you, Karen, and, and, and get your thoughts.
2: So I think there are two answers actually to your question. Um, one relating to leave and then the other relating really to the idea of why aren't companies investing more in employees' mental health? Um, I think, and, and they are related. I think when it comes to leave, um, and why leave can be both beneficial and when it's not taken in the correct way um, destructive is partly because there's something about the culture in the organisation that often determines whether or not people will take their leave. So highly competitive, highly driven organisations which give the message to their employees that taking leave um, somehow indicates either weakness or um, that you aren't aren't busy enough or or whatever the case might be is one reason why you see people not taking the leave that they're allocated. Either because they're fearful it will be interpreted in a negative way or because their managers discourage it um, because it's perceived as not part of a culture that is as driven, and just to be clear, that that's nonsense. Um, mm. As as Renata said, there, there are tremendous benefits to it, um, but when you get into this kind of busy, always on, excessive demand kind of culture, you end up not wanting to take leave um, and not wanting to remove yourself from the environment. But I think that relates to the leave. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think um, that, I think that you mentioned something very important, which is this fear factor. I can remember I was traveling in the states. Uh, in the eighties for an extended period of time. And I would encounter people who were kind of Americans who were very surprised that I had all this time to, to just be. And they said to me, listen, we, we get two weeks leave and don't take it consecutively because it's frowned upon. And I, I I came away from, from the States after that particular trip thinking, wow, this is a tough country. They really grind their employees and people are fearful. And I think that that, Speaks to again what you're saying, Karen, which is this corporate culture. What is the corporate culture? Now, I've been exposed more recently to, and I'm not going to mention the name of the organization, where you can take as much leave as you like and take it whenever you want, and you determine your hours, and it's very much about output versus hours so this is an organization which is a a big organization well-known organization and they've got a completely different ethos in terms of how they operate and it seems to work because i i I see they are still profitable but this almost goes in the opposite direction to what we're talking about which is very structured very regimented um, very predictable in a sense here they're saying just do whatever you want If you don't want to be at work today go and if you want to take a week off Take a week off. And what we're really interested in is, are you delivering in terms of what you're employed to do? And if that's the case, we got no questions. So that almost feels like it's going into a different extreme. But is it extreme? Or is that potentially the way to look at things? Karen and then Renata.
2: So I think that an organization that does has that kind of leave policy, what they're effectively trying to do and what they're doing is to say we deal with adults. Right. And we believe that, and, and I think there are two very important things that you have to do in order to develop that kind of culture. And maybe it's not possible for all organisations to do, but it is something that I think many organisations could aspire to. Right. What you have to have there is a very strong culture of accountability. Mm. So that when you allow people to take the amount of leave that they take, you also have to be very willing to hold people accountable yes. When, yes. They, when they abuse their privilege. Having said that, though, I think if you take as the underlying assumption of what they're trying to say, they're saying um, you're adults. Yes. You are yes. perfectly capable of knowing how to – For uh, you know, I know some companies that have done away with dress codes, not to say it's casual, but to say you're perfectly capable yes. of yes. knowing how to dress. You're perfectly capable of knowing when you need a rest. You're adults. Take the time off that you need in the context of an environment where you also know – when you're essential and when you're needed at work and when it's going to be a burden for others in your team. Mm-hmm. So where you can create a culture of accountability so you're not soft on accountability, you can treat your employees as adults, which is, I think, how, what every organization should aspire to do. Mm-hmm. You can enable that kind of a culture in a way that it doesn't have to feel extreme, but people yeah. take it with that kind of
0: responsibility. So I suppose that's also got a lot to do, and here we come back to human resources, is who you employ. Because clearly you need to get a very certain type of individual into that organization who can buy in to the exact ethos that you're talking about, where there is this accountability, people are motivated to be productive, but on their terms, as much as... Serving the organisation as well, so I think that your recruitment process is probably a very important one in terms of actually making that work. Besides the actual corporate culture, uh, Renata, I, I saw your your uh, when 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 Karen said uh, accountability. I saw you. Your ears you know, prick up.
1: It's it's one for me. If someone asks me, what is the one thing that can change South Africa? I always say when people take personal responsibility. So it resonates very strongly with me. Um, it also links, it, it's really, I think it depends on the workforce, as you said. And it, yeah. I think most people want to do good. Most people want to do their good, a good job. But there's always free riders and people with poor work ethics. I was just wondering in terms of fostering that free environment yes. um, in which people Potentially can flourish is we're talking about corporate mental health, and obviously then the conversation tends to steer in terms of how do we prevent burnout and other psychiatric disorders, Yes, but shouldn't we start if we want to foster mm-hmm. that environment aim to to emphasize fostering engagement more because for me, mm-hmm. engagement and burnout is always. Two sides of the same page. Yes. So, shouldn't we have, in this positive environment, foster engagement? But if you foster engagement, it comes down to the same principles. Where we need to look at employees' responsibility as well. Of, for example, self-care. Yes. Which is a if you don't do it, it's a risk for burnout. If you do it, it will enhance your engagement. Um, the other one thing that I just think we need to address and what is potentially one of the problems, why people don't take leave, why don't people take mental health days, even if it's maybe available, mm. is stigma. We mm. just conducted a study actually at one of the tertiary uh, medical institutions um, looking at why was the uptake of the healthcare professional support for doctors, nurses, etc. so poor during COVID, despite all the additional initiatives there were, both in the specific hospitals, but also on a national level in terms of helpline, free services available to colleagues, etc. And we, we're really busy analysing the data now, looking at the barriers to take up um, employee assistance programmes. Because there's many, but so many times I would also see patients in my practice that I'm, I'm like amazed that they haven't presented earlier. And then I would ask, but what about the employee assistant program at work? No. no so, so there's still such a lot of stigma that, that needs to be addressed on different levels as well.
0: Well, I think there is – we come back to that word fear. I think there is that fear of, of, of exposing yourself and that vulnerability. And then that whole fear factor then feeds into this issue of engagement. Who am I engaging with? Where is it going? What are the consequences going to be? How is it going to be understood, interpreted? What is the action going to be and and, and what's the consequence going to be for me? So I think we come back to something very fundamental, which is trust. And I think that is something that has to be built into the organizational ethos. And that is not easily accomplished. I think that that probably happens over time. But I want to just go back to something right at the beginning because there's been a question that's been nagging me. How do we diagnose presenteeism? Because absenteeism is easy. You're not there. How do I diagnose presenteeism? Because I think that's important. Maybe, Karen, you want to speak to that and Renata as well.
2: So obviously, you know, presentee- absenteeism occurs when you don't appear at yeah. work. I, I mean, I think they are, they, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd use the term diagnose, but there are ways of measuring presenteeism. Yes. And what we're really looking at is people's productivity at, if you think about people and their daily or weekly productivity at the height of either their physical and or, and, and mental health, and we could take that um, productivity as that. That's when they're at 100% productivity. They're well, they're healthy, they're energetic. They've got the time and the energy and the concentration to spend on on what they're doing at work. Then we have to, re- if, if we take that as the kind of baseline, and then we take somebody who is anxious mm-hmm. or who is suffering from anxiety, and depending on you know how severe the symptoms are, but who comes to work, um, but spends a significant amount of time at work worrying about um, a family member, about an issue that they have, they're not concentrating, they don't have the energy, that will reduce that productivity by percent. So it's quite, a, a, and I'm hoping Renata may have better examples than <laughs> I've been giving, but it's quite a, a you know, I think it, it really can vary an enormous amount. You, you see the same kind of thing occurring with things like um, physical ailments like yes. back pain. But people, for example, often won't take off work if they've got backache, but they come to work and they find it very, very difficult to concentrate on the work that they, that they have to do, or they take time off. But I think, you know, we have to think about the optimum, um, yes. 100% productivity, and then how the various conditions make people who do come to work unable to concentrate um, or to focus or to be productive, right.
0: the Right. um Renata?
1: Yeah, well, there's also other ways that we can measure it, and that is just purely talking to the team. Yes. Now, often okay. that person that is has presenteeism can frustrate fellow team members significantly because they are aware that they are picking up the slack of the other person, and they don't un- always understand why. And they will go through the fluctuations in thought processes of anger and frustration to maybe trying to, to diagnose the person, what is happening here? Does the patient have ADHD or anxiety or depression or is there substances involved? So, so there's a lot of other flags that we can see in terms of behavior as well. Um, I think one of the dire things of technology, although it is so enabling, we see such a lot of presentism in online meetings. And mm-hmm. I think the one thing that people do is they switch off their camera and they say sorry the bandwidth is a problem. That's nonsense. (laughs) Bandwidth in South Africa is not that pathetic. So so we you just know people are doing something else. And some people are even proud to say, you know, like I listen to the meeting while I'm busy making supper. You're not engaged then. And so there's there's so many facets to it. And I think as organizations and leaders needs to be more innovative in terms of also monitoring productivity for the remote workforce. They also will have to start to monitor remotely
0: presenteeism? You know, I mean, certainly we're talking about the employee, but I'm thinking about the manager at this point because technically you should know your employees. And I think if you are fully engaged with your employees, you will pick up that this person is not as productive as they were, not as productive as they should be. You will also hear grumblings from the fellow employees who may come to you and say, listen, So-and-so is not doing such and such. And so I think that management has a very important role to play. And here I'm speaking specifically not about senior management. I'm talking just about a line manager, somebody who's responsible for a group of employees. So I think that awareness and sensitivity is, 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 is critical when you are managing people to actually have a sense of them as people. Because that's where you often start to pick up. There are subtle changes that are taking place. They're more irritable. They're a bit more withdrawn. They're coming a bit late. There are all kinds of issues. So, you know, this is just to sort of put it there. Renata?
1: I think what is important there that we just go back to the basics of the definition of presenteeism and distinguish from disengagement. Because there's a big group of people that just disengage whatever the reason might be whether it's because they don't find meaning in their work, work ethic sucks or whatever the case may be. Presenteism specifically referred to what we see, but it is due to the presence of a mental health disorder.
0: Right. Is it always? Because I think obviously presenteeism can have a number of causative factors of which mental illness could be one, potentially. By definition, By yes. Definition. Karen?
2: A physical and mental health right so by definition it's, it's other things as, as renato pointed out other things like disengagement can have an you know where you choose to uh, place you know mental health also is quite a large continuum yes. so you could arguably say that somebody who is deeply dissatisfied with their job actually is experiencing poor well-being yes <clears throat> excuse me at work um but if you if you take more conventional definitions of mental health and you're referring to presenteeism presenteeism is specifically a uh, productivity loss associated with mental and physical health
0: Okay. Uh, okay. okay. So, so, so at least we've clarified that and one can use that as, as one needs to. There was something that we were touching on about wellness. And, you know, I see a lot written about wellness initiatives, employee wellness programs. And I wondered to what extent these programs or the employee assistance program kind of comes in at the tail end as opposed to being involved at the beginning, where in fact these wellness programs are constant, dynamic interventions that are monitoring the situation and not just looking at the system but looking at individuals within the system. And so my experience has often been that you call in the EAP, Employment Assistant Program, at the end and then it's all about Employee Wellness Program that get, that kind of kicks in to say, oh, we've got a problem with this employee and then they get involved. And I'm thinking, oh, but hang on a sec, why doesn't that Begin earlier? Why isn't it proactive? I'm getting a sense that it's more reactive. I'm not quite sure, Karen, what your experience has been and Renata, what your experience has been.
2: So, I mean, I agree. I think there is, and, and it's, it's to some extent, it's partly in the design. The, di- the design of an employee assistance program and the origins of an a, a employee assistance program is really comes out of um, addressing a problem once it's reached if not a crisis point, certainly quite a severe point. Yes. Um, I always laugh. I think that sometimes, you know, when somebody, I I don't laugh at this, but if somebody comes and tells you that something terrible has happened to them and you turn around to them and you say, oh, have you seen someone? Have you seen a therapist? Have you seen a psychiatrist? And your responsibility has now been passed on to the therapist or the psychiatrist and you don't need to worry about them anymore. And I think to some extent that's what's happened with EAPs. I think they're fantastic. I think that they are a tremendous management support, but I think they can also be used too much at the latest level, at a a very tertiary level, where you end up um, that the manager has done his or her job by referring an employee to an employee assistance program, rather than some quite often fundamental job design um, changes. Yes. You know, workload issues or, or managing Um, a whole lot of other issues in taking an interest in their employees, which, as you said, firstly can prevent the problem or can address it earlier. And secondly, the responsibility shouldn't all be sitting um, with the EAP.
0: You see, I'm, I'm just getting a sense of a lack of integration because I can assure you that as a senior manager, my involvement with the employee wellness or the employee assistance program was only if there is a problem, as opposed to experiencing them as coming to me and saying, how's it going with your staff? Do you have any issues that you might want to share with us or are there any things that we could more uh, uh, get more directly involved with? And I think for me then that becomes an issue of, of concern versus intrusion. I don't want to label people. I don't want to be too intrusive. But if I do have concerns, I don't necessarily want to only go looking for someone to help me when it's reached that point. And so for me, it's about how you integrate employee wellness into management as a function that is actually dynamic as opposed to just reactive. That's my thought based on my own experience in the state sector, certainly. Um, Renata, you wanted to jump in?
1: Yeah, that would link to what we talk about, primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention, where it tends to only kick in at secondary level, when there's already a problem, and then also when people have been ill from work and now they have to be reintegrated at work, which we know that's the reverse of the triangle. We should invest way more in pre- primary prevention where we change the work environment, but also where we put some of the responsibility on the employees for self-management mm. and leading the self and taking care of the self and having healthy boundaries in a certain way, etc. Um, and then even something small, like there should be policies in terms of when and how I can communicate. Am I allowed to WhatsApp, uh, employee while they're on leave or send emails? And if they don't respond to their email, say, but I've sent you email, your out of office reply, say you're on leave, but yes. so for me, that, that should not even, it's a non-negotiable that it should not be the case. So if we can look at that primary preventative level, we will have much less need for the secondary level, even less need for employee assistance programs. But then on the other hand, when we have tertiary prevention, when someone has been ill from mental health, I also don't think organizations is doing enough to reintegrate people at work. Mm. There's a tendency to go straight into extended sick leave disability, and there you go. Instead of working alongside occupational therapists, which specialize in help you addressing the workplace environment to reintegrate, your employee back
0: at work. Well, I think I mean we're talking about organisational culture, and I think that what we're speaking about is a need for a significant rethink. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen because we've mentioned organisations that seem very progressive, and maybe to not an to an extreme relative to 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 most, but they might be onto something. But the issue of corporate culture, I think, is very important and how it is kind of infused into the actual culture. But I wanted to go back to something because we spoke about remote working. And what I've seen, actually, as much as people are speaking about remote working and looking for that blended approach and how much better it is, I'm wondering to what extent it can be more stressful. Because I've also heard of situations where when you're working from home, you've literally got to be always on. There are packages and systems on your computer that can detect the fact that you are actually working and that you're actually present, talking about presenteeism. And actually, you know, for, for, for some individuals, it's actually more stressful being away from the work environment because at least at work, you can get up, you can go for a coffee, chat with a colleague, go to the bathroom, do whatever. Um, and have that kind of normal exchange, which I think is also part and parcel of a cultural uh, process where humans interact. And now we are kind of isolating people more, and they've got to be constantly on because they're being monitored. I don't know. You know, you're an organizational psychologist, Karen. What, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Because I've got some. I can I can see the utility in 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 remote working for certain situations and in certain at certain times, but I can also see the downside. And I have some concerns that I'm sharing and would like your thoughts. Karen?
2: Thanks very much. And I mean, I think remote working became very topical, obviously, over COVID. And sometimes we need to separate some of the things that emerged over COVID where we could not interact with one another in person at all with some of the challenges around remote working now where there are possibilities of getting together. So even before COVID, there were organisations that were demi- de- designed to be fully remote. Uh, they were called frogs, fully oh. remote organisations. Oh, organizations, oh okay. right? frogs, right. Um, and, and they actually, they were designed to be fully remote. And I mean, I been back to look at some of that literature in terms of how can you manage in, an, or in a context where places are fully remote? Because I think of some of the challenges which haven't gone away with COVID around fully remote working or even blended or um, hybrid working we're seeing a lot more loneliness coming through, and mm. um, there's quite a lot of research. And I, I think it's easier if you're in a family or environment, for example. Um, you know, you you have some kind of connection to other people, but a fully remote or even largely remote, often leaves people with very little informal contact. So you might be on teams meetings, and you might be online quite a lot. But we all know that the, you know, the coffee coffee machine moments, the, the casual interactions are gone. So I think loneliness is a real danger um, that is unlikely or is unusual to be associated with the workplace. But as we're becoming more remote, I think loneliness is something that people are having to address and that we do need to have more of that interpersonal contact.
0: And I think that that's so on point, because there was a recent article published in, in JAMA Psychiatry, and I keep referencing it in various of my podcast episodes. And, and, and the title of the article is Deaths of Despair. And it's looking at suicide and substance misuse in, in America. And this issue of aloneness and the increasingly isolated human, uh, cut off from not just extended family, but from community in terms of fellow employees, And the community in in general. And I think that as much as we kind of look towards remote working and everybody's, oh yes, you know, it's much more convenient, et cetera, et cetera. There is a potential downside. And I think we're speaking about it right now in terms of that aloneness and the loneliness and what are the consequences there for employee health, employee mental health specifically. And you know, there are certain individuals for whom the workplace, as you say, may be their one point of informal socialization. They actually get to see people. And I do think it's very important. Also, I do think that there's a lot of creative ideas that get exchanged between people in person. And it's good for the organization where you can bounce things off one another and new ideas come. Renata, what were your thoughts about what Karen was talking about in terms of this loneliness and the the remote working and and that as a potential downside that is maybe not spoken about much?
1: It is a potential downside if we look at the seats of self-care, what you really need in terms of preventing and increasing your resilience. There's a lot of research that focuses on socialization. But not all of us, doesn't matter what the circumstances, necessarily socialize with colleagues and the people at work. So as long as you maintain your outside-of-work relationships, it should be okay. I think one of the worst things for many, many people was the forced social coffee breaks virtually. It is so unnatural. It is so weird. Um, And also not everyone have it. We have so many patients with severe anxiety disorders Mm -hmm. and introverts that just flourish now because they're not exposed to what they perceive as stressful. So it's very, very personal. Uh, One of the quotes that I like very much, one of my patients one day told me in the midst of lockdown, I'm so tired of my boss in my bedroom and my children in my boardroom. So I think that is where we are stuck at this stage. But I think it's not a one-size-fits-all. I've spoken the other day to someone that's working in a, a company where they now use software, and I forgot it, unfortunately, what's the name. But it's almost like what we use now, but... It's an open office type of policy. So they completely close the the office totally. If they have to meet, they rent a space for the day. But everyone is on the screen the whole day quietly. You can't just unmute and talk to everyone. You literally can see the person is in the office. You can then knock on his door and have a quick meeting. Instead of scheduling a formal Zoom meeting, you can literally just Pop into the office, resolve something, leave after five minutes. And when you enter that person's virtual office, you separate from the group, but you actually can see people. You know, so yes.
0: so that means unique. you're under. So that means you're under surveillance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you we know, perceive it. Some people might find that you're under surveillance. Other people might find that we're working in an open office plan. Right. You know, so or open plan office. So it depends what's your perspective yes. on it. Um, you know. But
0: I think what you but but the, but the quote earlier speaks to this life work balance when working at home mm-hmm. and how to actually structure what is work and what is life and to keep a very uh, a specific boundary between the two, which I think can get a bit blurred, and that's where I think working from home can become very stressful. Actually, so I think there's pros and cons. But I wanted to touch on this issue of of of, of time off work. Because obviously that's got to do with sick leave. So you're sick, you, you take time off, and, and, and that's what sick leave is provided for. Um, but there's a an emerging, and I think it's been for quite a while now, that actually work is good for you. It's actually not healthy to be away from work for extended periods of time for sick leave. So, for example, the person is diagnosed with major depression and they're booked off for three months. And I come across that and I think, well, what are you going to do in those three months? What exactly is going to happen in those three months? Um, and so the, 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 the move now is, and, and I've seen it certainly at senior management, where my inclination has been to say, I'll accommodate you back in the workplace. I want you to get up in the morning. I want you to be able to come to the office with some purpose, but I will accept that you can maybe do an hour or half an hour. It doesn't matter. I want you to feel that you're connected, and I want you to feel that you have purpose. And I think that there's an increasing move away from these extended periods off, because I've also understood the longer you're away, the less likely you are to return. So Renata, your thoughts, and then Karen.
1: Yeah, there's actually very good studies to show that if someone is off work for one month, the chance to, to return to full capacity reduces to 20%. Sure. So your quality of life and your health and your happiness everything declines and for me it's it's as I mentioned earlier it's almost like unethical to book someone out for six months when, uh, for three months or six months or whatever the case might be because the, if there's not a proper treatment plan mm. and also we have good medication if you have depression or anxiety, if you, you're not better within a couple of weeks, then perhaps you should consider a change in either your medication. Or your psychiatrist, and the one thing that's often lacking is that there's not a holistic approach. Mm. You can't only rest. You can't only have medication. It's really about that package of self care, a healthy lifestyle. It's about therapy to develop the skills. It's about addressing the stresses in this case, which might be at work, and then there's also the medication aspect.
0: So that's where I'd like to see employee wellness more engaged. Where they're saying, okay, person has a diagnosis, what is the treatment plan, and with a full justification for any periods off, which I can understand. I mean, somebody, let's say, is acutely suicidal, somebody who's depressed, needs to be hospitalized, understood. Now they've come through that, we're in a more rehabilitative phase, what is the plan? And to what extent is employee wellness interacting with not just the employee, but also their caregiver? Obviously, there are issues of confidentiality and those kinds of things that need to be borne in mind. But it's about a, a, a proactive involvement to make sure that we don't get a chronic situation that then becomes disability, and then we've lost that worker. So I don't know what your thoughts are, Karen, but I'm thinking how employee wellness can be more proactive in engaging with mental health care providers, obviously with consent from the patient who's an employee and how one might work that?
2: 100%. I think that typically when we talk about mental health in the workplace, we we automatically assume that the workplace is a source of stress and distress for the person. And I think that there's a very strong counter-argument to that as well, and that is that the workplace is a source of meaning, it structures time, provides people with dignity and the opportunity to earn a living. So when your first or second line of response to somebody with mental health problems in the workplace is to book them off for an extended um, amount of time, or even to um, as I say, either book them off for an extended amount of time, or even eventually cancel them out or board them, yes, what yes. you've created is you you haven't really assisted the person, and often you've created a downward spiral. Yes, and I yes. think that if we we recognize that the workplace has immense Um, benefits to offer people and we want people I think that's absolutely clear as individuals as colleagues and as a society we want Mm -hmm. people with mental health problems to be in the workplace to be managed properly and to be productive members of society and by integrating wellness opportunities wellness providers managers assistance and help colleagues assistance and help Yes. That is far more likely than taking the route of just let's um, sideline the problem or let's just book them off for a certain.
0: So I think that we just, you know, need to be clear here. We're not talking about therapizing a business environment because obviously, you know, business is there for profit. Employee wellness is part of that. Sometimes I wonder how much is altruism and how much is profit. I want you well because I need more out of you. But I do think that everything I'm hearing is that, is that leadership has an ethical obligation or some form of obligation to look at staff wellness, which doesn't just prevent illness, but also in terms of actually having more proactive employee wellness programs without being intrusive. So I'm really looking at how we find that balance between not dictating how people live their lives but understanding that how they live their lives has consequences, not just for them as individuals, but certainly in the workplace. So we're coming to the end of the the episode Um, Karen, any final words from yourself? And then I'm going to flip to Renata. Anything specific that you want to say that maybe we haven't discussed?
2: Sure. I think just following up from the last point you made, um, and and in fact, it was one of the first points you made as well uh, about how we address mental health and human resources and mental health and what is specific about mental health and the stigmas associated with mental health is partly what makes the kind of ideas that you are proposing quite difficult, And Mm -hmm. I'm just going to end with an analogy, which I think it would be really nice for your listeners to think about. Somebody's broken their leg and they come back to the workplace with a broken leg. Nobody would think that they were therapizing or becoming a physiotherapist. If they assisted them, if there wasn't a lift, um, if they assisted them to get up the stairs, for example, nobody would find that strange or odd Mm. um, to assist somebody who had broken his leg or her leg um, to manage Getting through the building, for example. Yet we're so frightened of taking on that same basic human nature, human yes. role of helping somebody who's struggling. Um, and, you know, when we take it out of the mental health arena and make these analogies to physical health and take away the idea that it's shameful and it's weak, or it's weak, um, or the person is somehow responsible for it, or they can just snap out of it. And we start thinking about it more as the equivalent of having broken your leg, mm. which is not weak and it's not shameful and you can't just snap out of it um, and you can't get bit over it, yes. we start yes. to make much better decisions about mental
0: health. I think it's a fair point. Renata?
1: Very short and sweet is there is no wealth without mental health.
0: That's true. I think that's true. I think that's very true. So this whole issue of a, of a profit incentive or altruism, I think it's all conflated. It's all part of the same thing. But Renata and Karen, I want to thank you for your time and sharing of your knowledge and perspectives on an area within the business institutional environment that cannot be ignored. Employee wellness and specifically employee mental health, which is not about therapizing the workplace, but understanding that the psychological well-being of employees beyond the implications for them as individuals has implications for the organization and cannot be ignored so in my preparation for today's episode i came across a paper entitled wisdom quotes and psychological well-being a new horizon so what they did was they got a whatsapp group within the company and every day they sent a quote from a famous scientist which sort of shared a piece of wisdom and they were looking to what extent that actually improved emotional wellness and productivity and in their limited study That's what they found. So, in closing, I'm going to take one of those scientists' quotes, and it comes from Albert Einstein, who said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. Nothing to do necessarily with our topic today. I just like the quote, and if I'd received that in my WhatsApp, I would probably have looked at it and thought a little bit about it, and maybe it would have given me a little bit of a lift. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.